So we have to recognize that this type of thinking is white supremacist thinking. It is capitalist thinking. It perpetuates inequities. It counts on those inequities to be able to survive. And so we have to be able to choose life. We have to be able to say, this is fundamentally about death politics. These people have power and they have money and they do not care how many people die so that they can protect their money. We have to choose life. And life means different, more affirmative, connected, hybrid ways of thinking. Okay, welcome to Brian Talks to Humans, a people's podcast about everyday people. In this episode, I talk with my friend Katie. Katie and I met about 10 years ago. We took a fun trip down to D.C. for an education rally in March. She's one of the reasons why I'm a Ph.D. student right now. And we hadn't talked in a while. It was good to catch up with her. We get to know Katie's background a little bit through her mental health journey, her academic theoretical foundation, and how those two fit together. She describes the skills she's learned for living with anxiety and how those skills are serving her during this pandemic crisis. We also discuss how her theoretical orientation points a way forward for after the crisis. Okay, strap in. Here's my conversation with Katie. I hope you enjoy. In general, given the crisis conditions, how how are you holding up? How are you dealing with things? You know, to be honest, I think I'm doing pretty well. I think everyone is dealing with a lot of stress and anxiety right now, but I'm in a very privileged position. I, first of all, live in the Bay Area, which was one of the states, or I mean, really actually our area, not even the state, was one of the first to go on like pretty much a full lockdown shelter in place. Um, So our six counties here in the Bay Area were the first to do that, even before the whole state did. And then our state was the first. They did a really good job here of flattening the curve, which is, of course, I, know, I have so many new phrases now. That's one of them. <laughs> <laughs> right, um, yeah, yeah. Lots of new learning, lots of new learning. Zoom bombing, zoomed out. <laughs> I have Zoom fatigue sometimes. Yeah. I, that's one that I'm trying to coin, see if it makes oh. it out there. Yeah, but, well, yeah. I was, that's what I call it, zoomed out. I'm zoomed out rather than burnt mm-hmm. out. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, corona brain is another one that I, <laughs> that I make up, and that is just just the fatigue and where you can't focus on anything. And so you can't do anything. And, and so, yeah, when people are like, do you, where are we supposed to be? And I'm just like, sorry, Corona brain. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, but so in addition to geographic privilege, I also have, you know, I'm a middle-class person with a very stable job, you know, so I went online pretty easily because I already teach blended classes. So 40% of my work is already online. So it actually wasn't even that much of a lift to go online. So yeah, the one thing is my husband is a, he's a grocery store employee. He's a manager at Trader Joe's. And so he's kind of like one of these people that all the labor exploiters are now calling heroes. And so, (laughs) uh, so yeah, so he actually, it just happened to coincide with him taking some time off because he had a work-related injury. And so he needed to do PT, some pretty intense PT for a few weeks. So he's been home for me with me for a few weeks, um, which has its own challenges. Sure. And so <laughs> my, my friend the other day uh, in one of the previous episodes says, it's like, it's great that I'm trapped with you, but I'm trapped with you. I know, right? Yeah. Yes, in a thousand square foot house. And I have to work. And yeah. so 
Yeah. But yeah. So anyway, he goes back to work in a couple of days. So I'm, I'm pretty worried about that. But like I said, you know, compared to so many people, we are very, very, very lucky. And then the other piece of it, which I'm sure I can talk about more later, is that I have an anxiety and panic disorder that's diagnosed as moderate to severe. And the last year, I have done a ton of CBT, cognitive-based therapy, which research shows is the most effective long-term treatment for anxiety and panic disorders. So because I always am managing my anxiety, it works also with this. And so I, I talked to my therapist about it. I'm like, why am I not freaking out more? Why am I not having panic attacks? And she's like, because you're applying the same things you know, to the work-related anxiety and panic that you are to this. Yeah. So. A friend of mine that I interviewed for a couple episodes ago works with, uh, she's a mental health worker and kind of the same thing. She has some people with some pretty heavy PTSD and, and uh, they're like, listen, I'm used to being whatever, scared, anxious, whatever word you want to use. You know, so this is like, this is the norm for me. So I'm actually dealing with it in, in a relatively healthy, healthy way compared to folks who kind of don't have that base of uh, having, having a, an outlet to process things anyway. Like I've been in therapy for 20 years, you know, that you, that you're bringing into this situation, you know? So, but you've been pretty open uh, out there online and stuff about the mental health stuff you've been going about a year plus, it seems that it's been affecting you even more. You want to talk a little bit about that, how, how it kind of came about and some of the dis discoveries you've had along the way? Yeah, absolutely. So I don't know how much information I should give, like in terms of my backstory um, and positionality, but I can Do whatever talk you want. about that. It, okay, because it, it relates. I'm a faculty member at California State University East Bay. I teach full-time in our Educational Leadership for Social Justice program. Ever since I was a kid, I've always been a real high achiever. I was the kid that was always like, oh, with the hand up, call on me. And the teacher's like, anybody else? Anybody else? <laughs> so I, I always, you know, have had that just like perfectionist type A, need to do everything, doesn't know how to say no. And so I went through my doctoral program very, very quickly. I finished in about three and a half years. I, I really went full steam ahead. And then I, I took a job. I wasn't able to find a job at a university because my husband was from California. We had been living in New Jersey. He hated it with every cell of his being. And so he said, I, I need to get back to California. And so I said, okay. So I took the only job I could get in anywhere in California. And that was at a research and development organization in San Francisco. And there I worked for a woman who was extremely toxic and, and abusive and narcissistic and all of those things. And she also stole my work. And so had just massive trauma going through that. Was able to move over to the university a few years after I graduated. And I love California State University East Bay. I absolutely adore it. But also, you know, doing some work that because I was working in like sort of a small community of people who are doing some work that's becoming like very sort of almost like a fad, like a trend. Uh, it's very sort of trendy and sexy right now. And so, or at the time anyway. And so I pissed off some people who had also been doing work in that area. And so had some terrible traumatic experiences there because they smeared me internationally. Like literally these senior researchers wrote every single person they know in the world, do not work with this person. And so, you know, I, it turned out okay. And actually people called them out for that bullying because they were so-called 
feminist researchers, but it really, really damaged me. And so, you know, fast forward, that was in October of 2017. So fast forward to the summer of 2018 and I was in Europe. So every two years I go to a conference in Europe called the Castle Conference. It's in a castle. It's the self-study SIG of AERA, the American Educational Research Association. So it's self-study of teacher education practices. So we study our own pedagogy. And it's very related. It's like a mashup of autoethnography and action research with a specific focus on improving your practice for social justice. And so I go every two years. I go with my very best friends who I met in my doctoral program. So they're like my academic best friends. <laughs> and I just love them to death. And so I always look forward to it because we go to this conference, spend a few days there, and then we always take a girls' trip afterwards, like a week, you know, a long weekend. And so, you know, this year we were actually going to French wine country. We were going to Saint Emilion in Bordeaux. So I'm so excited. So I was going to the castle, I was going to French wine country with the girls, then meeting my husband uh, in Italy. We had this whole thing planned in Italy. Then I was going to do, I had like a week, and I was like, oh, I'll just go do a summer school Spanish intensive in Mallorca and Spain, and then I'll end up in the Netherlands. Well, literally the second day that I was in Europe, you know, facing this like six week trip that I'd done all this prep for and say, and I had like worked extra, taught an extra class to pay for it and everything. So I am in the conference. I'm really tired and feeling very jet lagged. And so I'm like, I'm going to go take a nap. So I walk back, we're staying at this B and B and I lay down to take a nap. And as soon as I close my eyes, all of a sudden these feelings washed over me. And I don't know, you know, if you had a moment where something has happened, where you realize like, where you have this moment where you're like, I have fucked up big time. I don't know if you've ever had that moment. And like, you get this like, almost like hot and cold sensation going over your body at one time. It felt like that, but it didn't stop. Mm. And so my body freaked out. It was like, what the hell's happening? What the hell's happening? What the hell's happening? And all of these things started converging at one time in terms of these sensations. So I had the hot and cold sensations of like something bad is happening. My mouth completely dried up. And it was like, it was like I had a mouthful of sand. My heart was beating out of my chest. My throat was closed up and I felt like I couldn't breathe. And I was having racing thoughts. In fact, I think I, so I don't know which happened first. It happened so quickly, but I also had racing thoughts at the same time that was like, you're nothing. Your work is nothing. You're nothing but your work and your work sucks. At some point, like I realized like I am having a panic attack, felt like I was having a panic attack the entire day. And I had something and I knocked myself out um, to go to sleep. I had like an Ambien or something. The next day it was totally the same thing. And I just... I just kept um, dealing with it. Well, actually, I didn't deal with it. I just basically stayed in bed, except for when I had to go do my presentation. And somehow I just dragged myself out and did it. And so it was like I was stuck in this panic attack for five days straight. It was like a nightmare. And I was having suicidal thoughts because I was like, I don't, I can't live like this. Like, I can't stand these feelings. I just wanted to put myself out of my own misery. So somehow, I don't know how, I got to France. And so we're in this little medieval village, like an hour outside of Bordeaux. And the woman who we were renting the house, we were renting like a little townhouse. And she's like, are you okay? And I was like, I'm really not okay. And I don't know what to do. I really need to go to the doctor. But you know, and she's like, okay, I will take you. So she, she like, literally, like we call, she opened the phone book. I don't speak a word of French. 
just a few bad words. <laughs> <laughs> and so she finds like a local doctor that's two, literally like two blocks away. She walks me down this like medieval cobblestone street to this doctor and she, and he didn't speak a word of English. She stayed and translated for me for like an hour while he examined me and all this stuff. And I'm so like, my heart's pounding. I'm like, how much is this going to be? Oh my God. It's going to be like a few thousand dollars. She's like, she turns to me when he tells her and she's like 26 euro. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> I'm <And> moving. Then, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then he wrote me a prescription basically for like the French version of Xanax, Yeah. which it helped me out for like, and I was able to get through the rest of that trip, the rest of the France piece, which was like 10 days. And then I met up with my husband and again, I, then I got really sick again. I think I can talk about it later, but what ended up happening was I actually built up an addiction to the pills and I was scared to take too much just because I knew it's an opioid and all of these things. And so I was taking less than the recommended dosage, mm -hmm. but I was taking it every single day. So I was like feeding my body just enough to be always experiencing withdrawal symptoms. So I mm -hmm. felt like complete shit. And so, um, so yeah, so I went back home and then it started me on this just like year journey. It took me about a year to pull myself out of this hole where I was just completely, I was like on all kinds of like different cocktails of medications at different times, dealing with just these terrible intrusive thoughts. I had these feelings that were going on all the time until I could knock myself out at night. And they were just awful. Like it was so awful. And I'm a very you know, in case you couldn't tell, I'm a very talkative person. <laughs> I love connecting with people. It's like, yeah. it makes me the happiest in the world. And I just like withdrew into myself. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't even want to talk to my husband who I've been with for almost 20 years. And he's like my best friend. I got on a different medication that finally worked because some of the medications were making me very sick too. I couldn't eat. So like I, I was so weak. I could barely even pick myself off the couch anyway. Like I could barely walk. I lost mm. so much weight. Yeah, it's a trial and error sometimes with that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it, so this convergence of things happened. I got into a specialty program at UCSF that was a specialty anxiety intensive program where you go to classes like for hours every day. And they just, they it taught me a different way of looking at the world. That's the best way that I can describe it. And looking at the anxiety. And then I got on the right medication. I figured out the one medication was making me really sick. Um, and was causing some of these disturbing feelings that in turn like caused the su suicidal ideation and really I had terrible intrusive thoughts too. It felt like there were voices in my head. And so, you know, once I got through that, I was just, I started writing, I started talking to people cause I was like, I almost didn't make it through this. And a, a lot of it is just, I mean, it is some of the trauma, but some of it too is just, I burnt myself out because I had so internalized the norms of the neoliberal university and the produce, 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 produce. And I had this idea in my head, Marilyn Cochran Smith. That was the idea in my head. Like I'm going to be Marilyn Cochran Smith. I have no idea why. I don't know why. I mean, she's, very, she's a lovely person. I've met her, just great work. But I, I had that stuck in my head. In my, at my university, you have to have five publications to get tenure. As of last year, I had 20 peer-reviewed publications. That doesn't count book chapters. That doesn't count edited stuff. That doesn't count actual books, whatever. I don't know why. I had this idea in my head that I just had to produce, 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 and it almost killed me. Mm. Talk about uh, a little bit about the layers here, because there's a, there's a societal stigma. There's a taboo in academia, but at the same time, you, you, were, you were saying before that you're also coming at this from, I guess, a couple points of privilege. So how does that all work together for you? So there are multiple layers of stigma. So um, as a society, 
we, and, and I think, I really do think it's because the logic of Western society, Western civilization is grounded in the enlightenment logic of, uh, I think therefore I am, of this uh, mind-body disconnect that actually our very humanity is predicated on, right? I think therefore I am. And what that actually left off was, I think therefore I am human. It hierarchizes the mind over the body, mm. right? My thinking is the grounds for my existence. It is the grounds for my humanity. The other thing that it invisibilizes is that that thinking is not neutral. That thinking is white, male, privileged, Christian, and an old, <laughs> but, <laughs> right, but right. right. So it invisibilizes that too, right? So when you actually play it out and you visibilize what that statement is, it is, I think in the way of a white, rich, elite, cis, all the dominant identities, <laughs> yeah, yeah, therefore yeah. I am human. Yeah. Right? And so because we, because that's so ingrained and so it's invisible now that that's the way we think. We just think, oh, we just think the way we think. We don't, we think in a particular way, which makes a distinction between the mind and the body and hierarchizes the mind over the body. So when your body is sick, fine, get some medicine, no problem. You break your leg, oh my God, we will accommodate you, whatever it is. But if something is wrong with you mentally, that's a huge problem. So that's the societal layer. In academia, it becomes that much more acute because your brain is your life as an academic. Your brain is everything. You don't have a body. It doesn't matter what kind of stress you are under. That doesn't, it doesn't matter. You are only your brain. And so if something happens that compromises your brain, your entire life is over because your career is your life as an academic. There's no boundaries, right? That's one of the huge problems. And one of the reasons that this happened to me. You know, so, so I need to be taken seriously. Also, I mean, there's layers, um, there's layers of privilege that I'll get to in a minute, but there's also layers of uh, intersectionality in terms of me being a young presenting, uh, young-ish, I mean, it's a relative term, <laughs> relative to a lot of the older folks that are in the academy, right? So I'm, I'm a young-ish presenting woman. I also present, well, I, just as a woman, you know? And so, so you need, I need to be taken seriously, but the young, the young woman piece also has particular relevance because I teach in a doctoral program, right? So it's not just teaching undergraduates. I teach mostly people who are older than me and have more life experience and more professional experience than me. They're coming back as principals, as curriculum directors, direct, you know, bilingual directors, um, you know, superintendents, all of these things. And so I, they have to take me seriously in order to believe that they have to believe that I have something to offer. Why should, otherwise, why should they listen to me in this doctoral program they're paying so much money for? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so there's all of that too. So then if you say you have a mental illness, right, your, your, your mind is compromised. You're not reliable. You know, how do we know you're not just going to be totally, you know, stuck on your couch having a panic attack tomorrow? It makes people uncomfortable. I mean, there's just so many different things around it. So yes, so, so there's all of those layers. At the same point, um, I enjoy a lot of privilege, which has, um, and so I think of sharing my story and doing this writing and presenting about this as leveraging my privilege because I am a white woman, so I benefit from all, you know, so many assorted privileges of whiteness. Uh, I benefit from specifically the sort of intersection of white and woman around um, discourses of innocence and like the nice lady, right? I don't threaten people. 
And so um, they're, they would be more willing to, to listen to me and listen to my experience. I have a pretty stable job and people who work with me, including my dean, are very supportive of me sharing my story and, and were very supportive of me through the whole thing, the whole year. And so all of that is to say, in academia, the issues of mental health are an open secret. It is not something we necessarily talk about too much, but mm -hmm. everybody is so stressed. Everybody is asked to do more with less. Everybody, you know, is, if you are going to publish, you're working nights and weekends. If you work at a California State University, you have a 4-4 load. Some schools are going to 5-5. It is ridiculous. <laughs> so this is an open secret. And, and so I recognize that as a white woman in a secure job with a middle-class income, that I can say certain things and get away with it that other people can't. So yeah. if I was a person of color in the faculty, they already have to prove themselves so much more. So adding that additional layer of being a black faculty member with a disability, a mental disability at that, they just, off, they wouldn't feel safe um, yeah. or may not feel safe. I don't want to say wouldn't, but may not feel safe to be able to disclose that because then it would just be another set of things that they have to navigate. So, so that's a way that I think I am able to leverage my privilege to be able to talk about these things. And interestingly, what I found is that the more I do it, the less shame that I have. It's almost like, I think it's, a, I think it's similar to when I first started unpacking my own white privilege and being able to talk frankly about matters of race and to be able to say things like white supremacy without hesitating. You know, I think that the more you do it and the more you practice it, the more natural it feels mm -hmm. and the more you are able to build the stamina to do it, right? Because it's the same, not the same, but it's similar with race in that it's a taboo subject, especially for white people. It makes us very uncomfortable. And talking about mental health, it's uncomfortable because it's a societal taboo. The more we do it and the more we have these conversations, the more natural it becomes. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm big on, on normalizing, talking about that. And, you know, I, I have clinical depression and, you know, sort of a thin layer of generalized anxiety. That's like a nice little icing for flavor on top of that. And uh, I talk about it a lot, you know, as much as I can and tell my students about it too, you know, and I've had a couple tell me privately that they, you know, appreciate that because they go, they go through it too. You've started writing about some of this though, both in a creative way and sort of a, would you say like academic, but experimental way? Did you yeah. want to read any of that or? Yeah, I do. So I just to explain a little bit about my theoretical background. So when I was talking before about the fancy term for it is the Cartesian duality, right? The yeah, I think yeah. it's for mm -hmm. um, And so that is a critique that many, many people have been making for a long time. That right now there is a convergence of thinking that's very exciting to me that people call different things. The best way that I can like if I was to classify it under an umbrella, I would say we're making a complex turn in our thinking. So we're moving away from simplistic binary ways of making meaning, which is the, you know, the, the type of understanding, you know, rationalism, humanism, also human centered and individualistic. Those are, those are the ways of making meaning that underscore Western society and, and hyper, hyper underscore in the United States, right? Cause we're hyper individualistic. And so, and moving to more of a collectivist, everything's connected but different, right? It's also about hybridity and a human and, right? Recognizing that humans actually are not supreme, right? So we call human supremacy, disrupting human supremacy, and instead thinking of ourselves as 
connected parts of these ecosystems, right? Um, as parts of ecologies. So the way that I use that is by applying it to teaching to say the teacher does not do the teaching to the students, right? In this transmission based way, she comes into composition with the students and everything in her context, including material things, including the space, including discourses and histories and all of those you know, policies, all of that comes together in what I call an assemblage. It's not my term, it's Deleuze and Guattari. Um, an assemblage, some people might call it a complex system, and it produces the teaching. It is a co-produced act. So everything we do is actually co-produced. Nothing sure. is, uh, is just from us, right? Even if we are speaking it, what is coming out of our mouths is not a single voice. It's actually an assemblage of all of our experiences, everybody we've ever interacted with, you know what I mean? Um, all of those kinds of things are beliefs. So we are speaking this assemblage into the world. And we're, we're always assemblages within assemblages within assemblages, right? Because we're connected up to all these things and it's always changing. And so we're seeing in the, in the academic world, this shift. And it's coming, like I said, from lots of different places. I call it post-humanism. And I actually subscribe to critical post-humanism, which is a mashup of the critical theories and post-humanism. Because for me, it's always got to be about also recognizing power relations and how systems perpetuate inequities for marginalized folks um, and disrupting those, but from complex perspectives. But you can look at indigenous perspectives and they've been saying, right, we are, we are not ourselves. We are us, the land, our spirits, right, all, all in one. They've been saying this for millennia. You know, Buddhism also is a form of this. And then from the sciences, you've got quantum physics, you've got complexity theory, you've got chaos theory, you've got actor network theory. So you have all the convergence of these collective complex thinking systems. So that's a really long way of just an introduction of I think with these theories. And, <laughs> and so, so most of my writing is like very sort of high level, you know, stuff that probably only teacher, I'm not probably, only teacher education researchers really read. And maybe some people on the margins of that. So that's all I really did. Although I do love more creative writing as well. And I've always been doing like, I always do self-study and autoethnography, but I, I apply the theories within there. And what I, my outputs are always very academic. So one of the things that I was frustrated about was this very academic way of speaking, which again, you know, actually does, again, reproduce those Western ways of knowing because I have to put it into a linear construction in order to communicate it to people. I cannot, I cannot express what I was feeling. Our language is extremely limited when it comes to expressing feelings and things that they just defy expression. And so I started experimenting with different ways, uh, ways of expressing more creative ways through poetry and narrative mostly, and sort of creative, like moving things around on the page. So I'll read some things to you and, and just know that you would probably want to be looking at it too, because I also use like italics and bold and different sizes and things to be able to also communicate meaning. But I really love mashing up this very uh, academic theoretical understanding with much more creative ways to understand the world. Because for me, that's the fundamental disruption, right? We're never going to be able to, right now, I'm not saying never, but right now we can't totally like throw off rational humanism and Western ways of knowing because we are all part of the system and we are all products of that system. It's always going to be bound up, right, in each other. And so, but you can bring in right? The new, the new way of thinking, and then it can produce new things, right? It's always a hybrid. And so that's, that's my idea with this is 
I'm going to talk to you about these academic things, but I'm also going to bring in these other things so I can provide a more holistic understanding and I can disrupt the idea that we're only supposed to do this very academic stuff, you know, to be taken seriously. So if it's okay with you, I'll read a poem that I wrote. Um, So this poem is called Academic Anxiety Disorder. And I wrote it to capture the feelings of of this year that I call the lost year, which is the title in the title of of the more academic piece that's mashed up um, with the creative stuff. But this is just a poem. And so I was playing with with ways of how how would I invite somebody into my experience? And I want to give a content warning to some folks because I have shared this with people who have said that uh, it's very upsetting to hear. And um, some of the, and I'm, I'm very frank about taking medication and things like that. So just a, just a content warning. Okay, so this is called Academic Anxiety Disorder. For a year, I've had this feeling, 24 hours, seven days a week, a festering wound of neoliberal academia infesting, infecting my body. Too much coffee jitteriness, can't breathe. Heart pounding, one second before a panic attack, completely exhausted. Icy fingers of terror crawling over my skin, clawing at my throat. This feeling is distracting, disturbing, consuming, can't think straight, can't face the outside world. I refer to it as my anxiety, like it's a separate entity, a parasite that's infiltrated my body, turned me into a stranger. Can't do my reading, eyes can't focus on the page. Can't do my writing, mind is shrouded in fog, an academic's nightmare. Intrusive thoughts scream, you're crazy, shouldn't be teaching. I click the PowerPoint slide and force myself to read my words. A weighted blanket covers me from head to feet. I breathe in through my nose, out through my mouth. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. At night, I take a pill, a gift of a few hours of peace. Drifting into sleep, maybe tomorrow I will feel normal again. Mm Thanks. So what do you think is the, well, let me, let me put it to you this way. Now that we've shifted into lockdown and isolation and all that sort of thing, how, what have you been doing for mental health and self-care and how are some of the skills that you learned translating? So one thing that really works for me, and I, I hope this isn't taken in like a pithy kind of way, because I do know there are very, I'm, I'm not a naturalist sort of person where it's like, all you need is love and friends and good energy and you'll have good (laughs) I am not that person at all I'm like give me all the pills I want all the fucking pills Um, (laughs) but in addition to that right for me it's an assemblage right it is um, all of I am doing all of the things and one of the things that worked and works really really well for me is pretty intensive exercise every day so um, I'm actually in the best shape of my life right now (laughs) (laughs) I last summer I I started walking a three mile trail because I just, I never got out of the house. I was so weak. I could hardly get up. And so, uh, and I was terrible at meditating. And so I was in this program and they said, have you tried a walking meditation? Mm. And I was like, no, but I will. And so you do these grounding exercises while you go. And so um, after a while, and I used to run the trail, I, I, I ran for years. And once I started getting stronger, I started running and I started having panic attacks again when I started back to school after I had been through this program and made a lot of progress. And I was very, very upset. And so I was talking with my, with my therapist and saying, I just had this panic attack. What should I do? And she said, go out for a run. 
when you have a panic attack, your body is preparing you to flee danger and give your body what it wants. And so I went and ran and I, it was, I did not want to do it. Like I had to, it took everything I had to force myself out of the house rather, but I was like, I don't want to go back into this hole. You know, I had spent almost a year under a weighted blanket on my couch. Um, there's probably a permanent ass print there. <laughs> That's what I always <laughs> joke about. So I made myself go run and I felt better afterwards. Not like normal, but <laughs> what is normal? But, uh, but I felt better. So I started running every single day. And then um, over time, I, so I've now been exercising seven days a week since the first week of September last year. I have missed maybe like three days total in that wow. entire time. So yeah, so that's been like the best thing for me. Plus, of course, I take I take med a pretty high dosage of an antidepressant and I do not take any benzo at all anymore. I'm completely off of them because that was making, that was, so that is one, one thing that I will say to people like, again, I'm not a natural type of person that doesn't say like, you know, no medication, go natural. But the benzos are really bad. Like I, I had this feeling for a year where like that was the beginning of my poem, like this feeling. And I could never explain it to people. I read in a book about anxiety where it, she said, it felt like somebody was brushing my nerve endings with steel wool. Mm. And that's the closest I could come to describing it. Like you just feel like everything is standing on end at the, like it's like somebody is in your head scratching down a chalkboard at all mm. times. And so uh, the running is the best way that I, you know, have been able to, to deal with the physical sensations of anxiety. And there's some science behind it as well, because, you know, so the anxiety comes from your lizard brain, right? It's the, it's one of the most primitive parts of your brain and it's responding to perceived danger, even though there's no danger happening. So you, you need to be able to retrain your brain because when, when you start having, when I had those panic attacks that lasted for like five days. And later I found out it was actually waves of panic attacks. I literally had forged new connections in my brain by the end of that five, that five day period mm -hmm. um, where the world was now a completely scary place. And anytime I got those feelings, my brain immediately was like, it's happening again. Oh shit. Oh shit. Oh shit. It's happening. And so, and then that, you know, your body and brain talk to each other. And so that they would amplify each other. But when you run or when you do intense exercise, you are actually simulating the many of the symptoms of a panic attack, right? You're sweating, uh, your heart is pounding, you're breathing hard. And so you're doing that while you are actually, and you're creating new neural connections, right? That this is actually something good. Like I'm doing something healthy. I'm going to feel good after this. Endorphins are being released. And so you're forging new positive connections in your brain um, and you are making those sensations less scary. So it is, it's actually a form of exposure therapy. So I've been doing that. And so I've been making sure that I do that every single day and exercise outside is the best for whatever reason. Again, I'm not, you know, like a hippy dippy, you know, go can, you know, <laughs> go be in nature. And you just need to but have an alkaline body and kombucha and uh, you're good, right? Yeah. And a, and a uh, good supply of, you know, some like some natural herbs and mm -hmm. things like that. Essential oils. Um, Essential oils. But yeah, so there's that. Um, and I do, okay, so I do a shit ton of self, self soothing. So I'm, I am a like, I throw the entire refrigerator at it and something sticks, something's sticking. I don't know. But so I have an acupressure mat that I bought from Amazon for $20. And it, you know, you lay on this thing and it's like needles in your back and it feels, 
you know, not great, but I sit on it and I read a book and it releases stress. It does. I do progressive muscle relaxation. So you can, um, you can look that up. It's their scripts to do it, or you can mm -hmm. it on YouTube. Um, it, it guides you through. Cause one of the other things too is muscle tension, um, comes from anxiety. So it, you, you squeeze and release different muscle groups in your body. So that helps with the tension, uh, release. And I'm not good at meditating, but when I'm, when I'm running, I do like the last half a mile of wherever I am. I take my music out and I do grounding exercises. So paying attention to like pounding the pavement under your feet and, you know, smelling the fresh air and hearing whatever you hear, you know, birds, or I could hear the water sloshing in my bottle on my belt, you know, and you're, you're noticing everything around you. So those are grounding exercises. The other thing too is I've developed scripts. So again, so one really important thing out of cognitive-based therapy are scripts. So um, these help you form those new connections in your brain. So the more you say it to yourself, the more you, it, it lessens the fear of things. Again, when my therapist said this to me, I was just like, this sounds like the stupidest thing ever, but I did it and it really works. Mm. So for example, when I start feeling like I'm going to have a panic attack, I talk to the anxiety. So one of the things I wrote in the paper was, was disrupting the uh, dialectical uh, or oppositional relationship to anxiety. So before I went through this program and worked with this therapist for a year, year and a half, I had a very oppositional stance, which was I am fighting the anxiety. I am going to win over the mm. anxiety. Mm. And instead I had to throw that away. Right. And again, that's like, real like binary dualistic thinking, right? It's either me or the anxiety. It's not going to kill me. But instead I developed a relationship with the anxiety and realized like this is always going to be a part of me. And I just have to make it not so scary, right? Because again, my brain and body talk to each other. So when I feel these feelings, I think in my head, oh shit, it's happening again. Oh shit, it's going to make me. And then I start spiraling and then my body blows up in terms of the physical responses. So instead, if you can say, I'm having some anxiety and this is okay. I'm having some anxiety. It feels like this and notice what you're feeling. It feels like this. I've felt this way before. It didn't kill me. I might feel uncomfortable for a while. I might have some anxiety for a few days after this, but you know what? I'm going to be okay. I'm going to get through that and it's not going to kill me. And I'm, I'm going to go, I'm going to do what I need to do. I might be a little comfortable, uncomfortable while I'm doing what I need to do, but I know from experience that I'll get through this, you know, maybe it'll take me a little longer to do the things I need to do, but it's okay. Like it's okay to feel these feelings. It's not going to kill me. And so the more you say that, the more you say that, and it really works. I, the last time I was, I, I feel like I'm on the edge of a panic attack a lot of times. And that is my go-to strategy now. And then I have things that I do just for daily management and upkeep which like the exercising falls into that, taking my medication. I never, ever miss a medication. I take the first thing I do when I wake up in the morning. Yeah. Um, because you know what? And, yeah. and that's the reason that I'm so committed to running because you know what? I never, ever, ever want to feel like I felt again that year. Um, and it got so bad because I leaned into the, I leaned into the black hole. And I, you know, I, I literally like looking back on it, I've done tons of writing on this now, a lot of reflective writing. And I really think I was facing down like my own death. I thought a lot. I don't want to be here. I just, I was so miserable. I just didn't want to be here. And I didn't want to live. I was like, I could, if I couldn't project myself into the future, right? If, if I did, 
Like I was like, I'm going to be like this for the rest of my life. I can't live like this. Mm. And so I will do whatever it takes uh, not to get there again. And that includes making a lot of different decisions. So for example, right now, if I was who I was in 2017, I would be flipping the fuck out because I'm not able to get much done right now because I can't concentrate on anything. Mm. My mind is like ping, 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 ping. I'm like a dog seeing, you know, chasing squirrels. But because I know so much now about how my mind works and how I respond to different things, I know that, hey, there's this global crisis going on and I have stress and anxiety about it. There, sure. And I'm also a person who needs to look into the future and know what's happening. I have no idea what's going to happen a week, a month, a year from now. And that also causes a kind of anxiety. And so, you know what? I'm going to be just compassionate with myself and I'm going to be honest with the people that I'm working with. And nobody ever writes back to me and says like, oh, fuck you. You can't meet this deadline. Almost always they're saying I'm dealing with the same thing. Yeah. And so, yeah, that, so that vulnerable, that vulnerability of being honest with people and, and saying, here's what I'm going through. When I, once I started doing that, what I got back was so affirming and just, I was able to make different connections with people because they were like, thank you so much for saying that I'm feeling the same way. And, you know, and then you make other plans, you modify, you do whatever's needed. So the, the, so that's how I'm dealing with things is through this upkeep, the, the daily upkeep in terms of management, body soothing, exercise, you know, regular medication, you know, you do not want to not have your medications right now. So I cannot say that enough. This is not the time to decide that you don't need your medication. You fucking need it. Take it. And then, yeah, be kind to yourself. Like this is not a time for productivity. Fuck that. That's the neoliberal yes, bullshit yes, talking. Yes. This is not the time to learn. You need to learn another language. You need to do whatever, whatever. No, take care of yourself. That needs to be your first priority. Take care of yourself and take care of the others that are in your life. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've had a lot of trouble concentrating and I like I, I, at one point early on in this process, I was actually beating myself up that I couldn't sit there and, and read or binge a show. And it's like, you know what? This is my, whatever my bandwidth is on a given day, that's what it is. And that's what it's going to have to be. And, you know, it just got to be, like you said, a, a, like compassionate and, and gentle with yourself, you know? Just reinforcing again, you know, I got an email or I got a text from my student yesterday, one of my doctoral students who's finishing, who's writing her dissertation. And she was very apologetic. We were supposed to meet and she was very apologetic. She hadn't gotten as far as she wanted to get. And I emailed her back and I was like, look, I can't concentrate on anything either. Um, I'm glad you're moving the meeting because honestly that gives me a sigh of relief because now I can do like something that I'm really behind on. And, you know, I, I am, you know, the fact that you have done anything on this project is a win. You should mm. be really proud of yourself because doing anything beyond the absolute bare minimum right now, that is a win. So, and she was yeah. like, thank you so much. I needed to hear that. Yeah. No, yeah, I'm glad that, I'm glad that, you know, there are educators like you and, and me and, you know, obviously many other folks who are putting that out there in the world, you know, to, and, and the students that I talk to are appreciative of it. And, you know, the, the idea of maximum productivity during a pandemic is <laughs> pretty fucked up. You've been playing the piano too. Tell us a little bit about your, uh, your, your uh, piano forays every day. Back, um, so I had a little bit of a relapse. I mean, that's the other thing to know about, you know, mental health journeys. It's that it is a journey. You're never, you're always in recovery. You're never, or, you know, or maybe you're not even in recovery because you just develop a different relationship with it and it doesn't become a bad thing. 
but it's, it's very nonlinear, right? And so, um, you know, you have good days and bad days. And I had like a pretty bad relapse in January where I went um, somewhere for a conference and then I was supposed to be on vacation after that. And I couldn't stop thinking about work. I was having obsessive intrusive thoughts about work. So when I came back, I talked to my therapist. And so I came to the realization that I have a very unhealthy uh, relationship with work. I have an unhealthy obsession with work. And it's something that didn't, I mean, it should have been clear to me because obviously it's one of the reasons that I developed this, but I had before, I think I'd been more blaming it on different meds, on changes, on different traumas. But anyway, so this was revealed through our, uh, our reflections together. And so I was like, you know what? I want to develop some hobbies because my main intrusive thought when I start obsessing about work is that I'm nothing but my work and my work isn't even great. So I'm worthless. And so to speak back to that, you know, I developed, you know, again, you know, to speak back and say, you know, the different scripts. And so one of the things is I am a multifaceted person. And so I started developing some different hobbies. And so one of the things that I have not been good about in recent years is keeping up my piano playing. So I was very, very fortunate. Um, I grew up in Alabama. I'm not fortunate to have grown up there, but I was fortunate to have gone to a magnet school where um, it was a focus on the arts. And so I grew up playing multiple instruments, you know, taking creative writing and creative arts classes, theater, you name it. And I loved the piano. So I continued on with the piano through school and I stopped taking lessons after high school, but I continued to play and I loved playing um, 70s, 80s um, rock, and you know the Beatles and Elton John and um, all kinds of stuff and so I just kept playing and I played always very regularly and I even played in college I played in a piano bar for a little while and then <clears throat> I stopped playing because I was so hyper focused on work around the time I think I finished my doctorate was the time that I stopped playing regularly because every spare minute I had I was writing or making preparations to write and so I started then in January I went online and I was like, what kind of volunteer opportunities are there where maybe I could go play the piano somewhere and maybe that would make some people happy. And so I got in touch with uh, one of the largest senior facilities in San Francisco, which is the San Francisco Jewish, Jewish campus. And, and you don't have to be Jewish to be there. They serve tons of people, but anyway, it's huge. They love having people in to play music. And so I spent a lot of time in the memory care unit because folks with dementia and Alzheimer's respond particularly well to music. Yeah, I've seen that. Mm -hmm. So I would go and I would play um, for a couple of hours, about two times a week, and I just really loved it. And so when, when this started happening, I was contacted by the, the folks at the senior center and they said, would you want to zoom in and, and play? You know? And I said, sure. And so I started doing that. And I don't remember why I decided to do it on Facebook Live, but when right around the time that this started, you know, I think, I think it was because I played a couple of songs that I was being funny with. Like, I think I played, um, I will survive on the piano. Yes. Um, I remember that. Yeah. 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 People like commented so much on it and they were like, you know, please keep playing, keep playing. So I just started making it a daily thing. And then people started making requests and I shared that, um, yesterday I was on Facebook live and I was playing, and a friend that, you know, she, she actually was a student um, of mine when she was in a teacher ed program at Montclair, one of my, in the first class I ever taught. And she said, would you play Meatloaf? I would do anything for love. And I was like, ah, I just happened to have that over here. And uh, I have a lot of songs. <laughs> and so, and I, and I played it. It's also a way for me to push myself because 
because I haven't been playing for the last five years, I'm pretty rusty. And I also only play by sight. I don't memorize anything. So that way I can play just tons and tons of things. So, you know, when I play, it's a little slower than whatever, because I'm reading the music as I do it. And I'll fuck up every now and again, but it's also a way to push myself too to not be such a perfectionist. And so again, thinking about expo this is a form of exposure therapy. Playing piano is therapeutic for me. It engages a different part of your brain than more academic work does. And it makes me happy to be able to, you know, provide some happiness to other people too. And one of my friends, you know, who I don't see very often, she's like, it's so cool to see you sitting in your living room every day, you know? So it's just, it's like a little, you know, it's a slice of happiness. It's a slice of connection in these very ambiguous, you know, and scary, unpredictable times. So if I was going to do a clickbait article about you, the title would be, maybe, I don't know, we'll see. How will post-humanism save us from this crisis? Or something like that. Or like, so what I've been asking people to, to, to think about is not so much silver linings, but like, what is the world going to look like after this? What can we hold on to that maybe we're doing differently now? How can we build a better world after this is over? Yeah. So um, I feel like I've been preparing for this question my entire academic life because all of my articles, it feels like, start off by saying, we live in a really fucked up world and we need different ways of thinking, of talking about it, and of living in it. And, and so critical posthumanism for me provides that. And, and I always say it's not the only, it is one of these complex theories that, allow, that provide different possibilities for us for living differently. So when you start looking at the world where you stop seeing yourself as an isolated, agentic actor in the world who is separate from context, um, who can pull, you know, so you start to see that this, this logic is extremely harmful. You can see it reflected in bootstraps narratives in, uh, you know, more recent terms like grit, right? In these person-centered deficit-based narratives. So when you move to a more connected perspective, it changes everything. There's a great quote from Deleuze and Guattari that I'll paraphrase where they say, you know, when you, when you stop looking at problems, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, when you stop looking at problems from up or down, left or right, and you start looking at them from the middle, everything changes. So when you stop thinking I am above this and I can look down on it from this objective view, when you stop thinking, you know, things are neutral, um, you know, People can work hard and make money and whatever and not consider power relations and just everything all at once, right? You have to consider everything all at once. So when you stop thinking in these disconnected, ahistorical, acontextual, human-centered and cruel terms, because that's the other thing too, is when you think about these like very disconnected ways of knowing, it's about cruelty because with a disconnected, simplistic way of knowing, you can say, those people are making that choice. They are choosing to be poor. They are choosing not to get a better job so that they can afford healthcare. They're choosing not to be able to feed their family or live in a safe house, you know, whatever, right? Rather than understanding that all of these events are connected and that there are power relations that make it possible for certain people to do certain things and other people not to do other things and that we define the human in particular ways that advantage, you know, white, you know, folks who have colonized the planet. And we also can then look at too, you know, patterns of environmental degradation 
and see. So with this kind of connected thinking, we can say there is, um, we can, we can say like there, there are these historic things that have been happening, right? So we are right now in what the scientists are calling the Anthropocene. But then there are other critical posthumanist folks like Donna Haraway, who has said, it's actually not the Anthropocene because the Anthropocene centers Anthropos, right? Which is the human. Mm-hmm. But in fact, wouldn't it be more accurate to call it the capitalocene, right? Because the Anthropocene is marked by extreme environmental degradation caused by humans. But was it caused by humans or was it caused by capitalism? Mm-hmm. Then, and, and again, you start making all of these connections. And so, you know, for example, my social and cultural foundations class, we took a slice of, of different social justice, right? Because it's very, social justice is all intersectional and intertwined. But you, you can take pieces of it to say, okay, let's look just at the slice of race and education. Let's look just at the slice of poverty and education. And so we did gender, sexual orientation, identity, um, disability, and we ended on eco-justice. And so we said, now we can take all of these, we can take race, we can take um, economic imperialism and colonialism, worldwide poverty, we can take disability, we can take gender, we can take all these, and now we can connect them up to capitalism and forces of capitalism and forces of capital that are resulting in environmental degradation. And we can see that environmental degradation is disproportionately harming the folks who are already not defined as human or defined as less than human, right, by white ways of thinking. So, so for me, that is what we need to do. We need different, more complex, connected, and affirmative ways of thinking about the world. We have to be able to include power analyses. We have to be able to say there has to be a different system than capitalism. I mean, if I was going to say one thing that we have to destroy, we have to destroy capitalism, but we also have to understand how capitalism is bound up with white supremacy and mm-hmm. colonialism. And so we have to kind of see it as that like tripartite type thing that we have to be able to disrupt. So I would become frustrated even with myself in the past when I was saying these things because it feels really big, right? The, the world operates on capitalism, it feels like. And it's just so big and the people who are in charge of it have so much power. So. I am simultaneously horrified and grieving for for the deaths that were would have been preventable if multiple things were in place, right? Our healthcare system was different if we didn't have I don't even know. I don't even have a word terrible enough to describe him. One time I saw somebody on Twitter call him a shit gibbon, but I think that that's like Scottish, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but but then I'm like that's disrespectful to gibbons. Um <laughs> But <laughs> how about twat waffle? That's a, that's one that yeah, I've heard that, lately. That is that's a really good that's a really good one. I just I call him like President Ass Clown. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but right, so on the one hand, I I am you know utterly horrified and devastated. But on the other hand, I feel like there's also hope in this moment because I see that this is laying bare for the mainstream, not like the people like me who you know, can like talk the Marxist talk and the critical talk and, you know, always say the same things about capitalism and understand, and you know, we basically talk to ourselves about it or try to talk to others, but you know what I mean. But it's making it clear to everybody except those who are really drinking the Trump Kool-Aid. But I mean, the real mainstream, like it is showing. Yeah. Like we live, the majority of this country lives in precarity because of capitalism, because capitalism is a, fundamentally cruel system and it does not care about massive debts the people in this country who are wealthy and 
who um, pulled the strings of our politicians do not give a shit that today uh, we passed 30,000 deaths in the United States alone. They do not give a shit. All they care about is their money. And again, these are very separated ways of thinking, right? When, when those are artificial boundaries, we are not separated. We are all together, different, but all together and connected. And, and by, by perpetuating those divisions and being able to somehow convince you know, somebody in Oklahoma, you know, that this person that they're separate from that they don't know is the enemy, right? By doing that, they are, so, so again, this comes from something that is, is very ingrained in Western logic, which is the idea of negative difference. And that is the idea that what is not like me is bad. Mm. And whatever this thing is, the thing that's the opposite of it is defined in negative terms. And so difference is always cast as a bad thing, right? You always want what is similar to you. So if we could somehow, you know, again, with these different ways of thinking, if we could recast difference as actually a, a fundamentally creative force, then I think we would be able to shift away from that type of thinking and shift into more creative ways of thinking. You know, so for example, if you think about the richest ecosystems in the world, they're the ones that are the most biodiverse. So the more diversity and the more difference that you introduce in a system, the more likely it is to flourish and the more likely it is to create new things that you have never thought of, right? When you get people into a room from all different walks of life and different experiences and they can share, you create things that could not have been predicted from initial conditions and that the individual people on their own couldn't have created. It's not additive. It's not you put all these things together. It's essentially creative and qualitatively different. You create something together that's more than the sum of its parts. Mm. We need that kind of thinking because we are look in a state that's like sort of, I mean, I, I don't mean to sound alarmist, but we're seeing things all over the world in the Western world we have for years that uh, are fascist, neo-fascist and very authoritarian. And those ways of thinking are based on negative difference because people get scared and they give up their freedoms. And so we have to be able to to embrace difference because we are living in a more and more connected world. I mean, that's one of the things about the coronavirus and the way that it proliferated, right? All of these connections um, that are invisible until it proliferates, right? Mm. We are so connected. And so we cannot live with these outdated, archaic, absolutely cruel ways of thinking, you know, because it, again, like when I talk to people about this, if I can't like really, really explain and give examples, they're like, are you nuts? How are we going to change our way of thinking? And I'm like, if you really think about it, we think in cruel, cruel ways. Deleuze and Guattari, who are my favorite theorists, they uh, have a book called A Thousand Plateaus, where they develop the figuration of a rhizome as the central image of thought. They don't call it a metaphor because they say metaphors are just, you know, whatever. This is actually an analytic tool. So the figuration of the rhizome is about like this proliferated, you know, connected thinking. Um, if you look at a rhizome, it's like, it looks like a big just ball of all of these different roots tangled up together and it grows unpredictably in offshoots both above and below ground. So, so it's, you know, about this like mobility and flux and connection and hybridity. They describe this type of humanist rational thinking, right? The Cartesian, the, the thinking that comes down from the enlightenment as a tree, right? Because it's one tree, one trunk, you know, it's essentialist, it's coming from a core idea and it branches off into more of the same, right? Mm -hmm. It's the one that becomes two, right? The branch 
divides into more little branches, right? So that type of thinking always recreates itself. It reinforces the status quo. So you need different ways of thinking. Um, but they also say, we're tired of trees. They've caused too much harm. Again, I'm paraphrasing. They have caused too much harm. And so we have to recognize that this type of thinking is white supremacist thinking. It is capitalist thinking. It perpetuates inequities and it is so fine with that. It counts on those inequities to be able to survive. And so we have to be able to choose life. We have to be able to say, this is fundamentally about death politics, necropolitics. That's what I've been calling it. These are death politics. People are, these people have power and they have money and they do not care how many people die so that they can protect their money. And so mm -hmm. we, have to, we have to choose life. And life means different, more affirmative, connected, hybrid ways of thinking. Okay. I don't want to take up too much more of your time. So we're going to end on a bit of a light note. We're going to play a game. You ready? Okay. Okay. The game is called One Gotta Go. I'm going to give you a list of four things. You got to get rid of one of them. You ready? Okay. All right. So your bed, your bathroom, your phone, or your laptop. One got to go. I'm going to go with phone because uh, I can call people <laughs> from my laptop. <laughs> and I, I need to be, I, I thought, I was like, maybe phone because I could, I could play music and I could read on my phone and all of that. But I got to be able to write. I got to be able to do my writing. Yeah. Not because, not because of any productivity bullshit, but because I love it and it's life-sustaining for me. I feel you. Okay, so if this goes the wrong way and we end up in the, the bad part of the virus movie, electricity, running water, grocery stores, or roads? One gotta go. Oh, that's really hard. Uh, I guess I'm going to say roads because you need water. You can... You can walk to the store if you need to. Okay. All right. Now for the, the world after the crisis. Cure for cancer, world peace, no world hunger, no climate change. One got to go. Okay. I'm going to go with cure for cancer because if we have a healthy climate and we eat, we all have nutritious meals and we're not fighting wars that destroy environments, maybe we all would be healthier and not mm. have to worry about such a high cancer rate. Mm. And I think the other three are sort of in, impact the entire planet and not to, not to minimize the suffering from a disease like cancer, but that's affecting a slice of the population of the however many billion people there are, right? Okay. Agreed. One more and we're done. This, <laughs> okay. is, my, this is my favorite one actually. Free food, free healthcare, free transportation, free housing. I'm going to say transportation again, just thinking in terms of the hierarchy of needs, mm -hmm. right? So you need, you, need, you need nutrition, you need to be taking care of if you're sick and access to medicine and everything. Um, you need a safe place to live, but transportation, you know, you could walk if you needed to, um, I guess. I mean, I know transportation's needed for work and things like that, but, I, but again, I'm just thinking in hierarchy of, of needs. Yeah. Yeah. I think the other three are sort of more, more base level and more human rights-y. And the transportation, if I had to pay for one, I think it would be that one. Yeah. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this, uh, working through some technical difficulties, talking about some, some heavy stuff. And uh, it's always a, a pleasure to get together with you. And I hope, uh, hopefully we talk soon. Yeah, sounds great. Thank you. Okay, that was my conversation with Katie. I hope you enjoyed it, found it interesting, enlightening, maybe learned a thing or two or three. 
and perhaps it got you a little more optimistic about the world we can build after this crisis is over. Go to BrianTalksToHumans.net for more information and follow BTTHPod on Instagram and BrianTalksToHumans on Facebook. If you're listening on a platform where you can subscribe, rate, and review, please do that. It would help me out a lot. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. She Oh, uh-huh.